Adam Strauss. And I'm Jordan Iper, MD. And this is not therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much therapy. It's not therapy, man. So last episode, we covered a lot. We covered both of us really struggling with body dysmorphic disorder in our adolescence. Me, because of my massive, grotesque lips. You, because of your satellite dish-sized earlobes. <laughs> it's amazing. You found a pair of over-the-ear headphones that actually fit you. I, oh, they got I great. Those are two hubcaps that are just fixed to a they get great reception though <laughs> yeah. i've been watching a lot of uh a lot of singaporean news recently <laughs> right you actually can control the mars rover from your <laughs> your headphones you know it's funny as i actually I, I didn't even say this in the last podcast i i pierced my ears too when i was 12 years old so i oh 12 wow i think it goes back to that control mastery stuff we were talking about it's like they were so big that i wanted to uh i wanted to master the experience with a with a stud earring and six sort of own it of own course it, for you yeah. a, st- a stud a stud earring was actually a dinner plate <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it was a, a, a titanium dowel quarter inch <laughs> um so that was jordan's body dysmorphic disorder his ears for me it was our my lips so we talked about that last episode for me it indirectly led me into a mental hospital it sounds like it didn't get that overwhelming for you. Uh, And then we traced a good deal of my romantic relationship history from college onward. And we, we broke at the point where I had the most significant romantic connection in my life. And it ended 17 years ago now. And in the aftermath of that, I developed uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Of course, we talked about our moms. Moms are always, we spent some time in Momsville, (laughs) though not that. (laughs) Every time. We made a brief stop over to Momsville. Uh, But, uh, and so we wanted to pick up that thread. So let's, let's continue with the not therapy. So we left off. I had this relationship end with a woman named Annie, the one who was in the World Trade Center, which actually is not inconsequential to the full story, but I don't want to get into that full story now. But yeah, in the aftermath of that relationship ending, that's when I developed this decision-making OCD. And as I related last episode, this idea of, all right, I'm not willing or able to feel my heart, to feel the loss and pain that in a non-metaphorical sense, in a very literal sense, I felt in the center of my chest. I wasn't willing to feel that. So my solution, my mind solution was go up into my head and just try to figure out how to make everything perfect. And that's where the OCD started flourishing. And even though with the OCD, I was still trying and to some extent succeeding in meeting women. But the theme or the pattern that developed was I would very quickly on meeting someone, I would very quickly find reasons why it wasn't going to work out, why it couldn't work out. I would find flaws. It could be a concern over a physical feature. It could be her sense of humor. It could be, this was a, a big one for me was, well, we just don't really relate or we don't have great conversation or mm. whatever it was. I'd find some reason early on why it couldn't work. And we might still develop a relationship that would be largely kind of a sexual relationship, friends with benefits, that sort of thing. I think I had a big fear of, and I think I've always had, and as I'm saying this, you'll probably tie this back to my mother, uh, a fear of hurting women, uh, a fear of hurting people in general, I think. And that yeah. may come from the fact that I think I'm very sensitive. I Things affect me strongly. And so I kind of assume everyone is that way. And I'm very, very aware of... Um, I'm very aware of trying not to hurt people. However, when I say that, there's a, I want to be careful here. It's not like I'm the saint who always puts other people's feelings first. I generally put my feelings first, but there is an awareness of people being sensitive and not wanting to hurt people. And so often the way I would handle these relationships is very early on. You know, I'd meet someone, I'd usually know, not usually, I'd always make the decision within a half hour of meeting them, okay this person, it's it's not going to work with this person for whatever reason. And then I would tell them, I wouldn't tell them the reason, but I would say, you know, I just, I don't feel like there's really a connection here. Or I'd say, you know, I, 
I'm enjoying your company, but honestly, I just don't think this is going to go that far. I would give them some sort of big disclaimer telling them that this was not going to be a substantial relationship from my end. And some people would be like, okay, I'm out of here. And other people would be like, that's okay. I'm not looking for anything serious, or we can just kind of see where it goes. That defined my relationships for many years. This was so time frame. Relationship with Annie ended in 2003. And yeah, and so I had a succession of these sort of relationships, sexual intimacy, some emotional intimacy, but never a sense of this is my partner. This is someone I want things to get deep with. That, um, that relates a lot. Because on the one hand, it's good to tell someone early on if you don't think it's going to become a serious thing. And I think the bar in our culture is so low for men communicating just about anything with partners that perhaps unfortunately you can get a lot of runway by just just stating stating something like that like oh i think you're great but i don't see it going anywhere and that you can just go from relationship to relationship that has those parameters and everyone's on the same page and no one's getting unduly hurt and it's nice but I don't know. I'm maybe I'm speaking about your experience. I might be speaking about my own experience, but I think, but there's a way in which deeper layers of protecting yourself, protecting myself from love are still operating, even though I'm everyone's being an ethical, like an ethical actor in the situation. You're still not. Maybe there's a question love. there. You're but not getting closer. Yeah. Or, or are you, I would look at my own behavior and I'd say, all right, I'm being, I'm being honest with what I'm saying but yet I'm still having sex with these people. I'm still holding them. I'm sleeping, you know, I'm spooning them. I'm giving them all yeah. these signs of affection and intimacy. And do I have a deeper responsibility? And this emerged particularly with a woman I was with in 2005, where she was, it, it was, I, she literally started laughing on our first date when I said, Hey, I don't really feel a connection here. She just burst out laughing. I was like, how can you even know that? And I was like, it's just what I feel you know, I really don't think this is going to change. And she's like, that's fine, whatever. And we kept seeing each other. And she, I think she fell for me. And at a certain point, I was more and more tormented by the belief that this was a very unhealthy relationship for her. Huh. And I would bring this up with her. I'd say, I don't know if this is good for you. I feel like you want more than I'm willing to give you. And I feel like it's making you feel badly about yourself and she would deny it. She'd say, I'm an adult. I know what I want. This incidentally is someone I should mention. There was not a, a real age difference as opposed to many of my relationships. She was a successful professional, um, pretty high powered lawyer. So it was kind of like, all right, she can manage her life. And that's cropped up in subsequent relationships too. This feeling that I'm being honest and it's easy to say, well, if I'm honest, this other person is an adult. So they can make their own choice, but do we sometimes have a deeper obligation to, to you know, it's tricky because you don't want to be paternalistic. I don't want to no, be like, oh, yeah. I know it's better for you than you know it's better for you. But you know what? Sometimes in, in that situation with that woman I was relating, again, 2005, it really felt to me like I did. And if we're going to go a little further with this, I think I was right because it turned out she had a pretty nasty coke habit that I did not know about. I discovered it. Hmm. I'm not saying she was abusing cocaine because of me. I think it pre I know it predated me, but it just kind of belied the idea that, oh, this person has their shit together. They can manage their life. So, so yeah, it's, I feel like there are other ways that we can unpack that situation without it needing to be one where you are being paternalistic you're taking care of her you're separating from her because it's the best thing for her i'm wondering like what what did that feel like for you what was that connection like for you right it felt sad is the first word that comes to mind it felt sad because i was still mourning this relationship with annie even though i wasn't consciously mourning it i was in total denial the ocd was really taking over it felt like i was settling 
that's a brutal way to put it, but that is an absolutely accurate way to put it. It felt like I was settling for someone who was giving me a certain measure of comfort and companion <laughs> and companionship was not ultimately what I wanted, but was better than nothing. And that felt the word that comes to mind, like I was using her. And I've had this conversation with, I was going to say many, but yeah, a good number of women over the past 17 years since things ended with Annie, where I've said, you know, it kind of feels like we're using each other. Mm -hmm. And that conversation has led in all sorts of directions. But so that's how it felt with this, this woman. It felt like, yeah, like it, it just kind of highlighted what I'd lost with Annie and it made me feel, um, there was a sadness. There was a sadness that I knew I wasn't giving this woman what she wanted. I wasn't really getting what I wanted. And yet it was better than nothing. I think that tendency to make it about her and what she wanted is an important one for us to look at of right. how you, you, you began the tale of that small relationship with, I had to end it with her because I was hurting her. She, she wasn't getting what she wanted, but it sounds like you actually were not, you're aware that you were not getting filled up in the way that you wanted. Um, yep. And that's, yeah. So that, that tendency in your mind to first make it about her rather than owning your own needs and what you were and weren't getting in that relationship. I feel like that's an important one for us to put a, put a bookmark in. Or we can, we can go into it a little bit now. We might wind up getting on the train to Momsville if we go into that. I, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna be going to Momsville no, no matter what. All right, what well, we can we we can go on with recounting the relationships. But yes, absolutely. My my sense was, it's interesting that you point that out, and it's accurate. It was and has been primarily that. Yeah, am I hurting this other person? Not so much, am I hurting myself? Though there has been a sense of that as well. In a recent conversation, you said something that really stuck with me. It was not a conversation we had on the air. You said that, you know, they call it making love because you're making uh, love. And even yes. if it feels at first like we're just getting our physical needs met and so forth, strong feelings wind up developing and and you said that in the context of explaining that you were not feeling served by that sort of relationship and that you are wanting something deeper. Yes. Yes. I've, I've been talking about this on stage. Um, the idea that, you know, making love, that phrase always struck me as odd because what, what, you're not making anything you're, you're having, even the making is such a weird thing. I get having sex, I get, but you know, giving to someone, but making, and the older I've gotten, the more I've realized how accurate that phrase is, that it feels like love is the product of this act. And I am incapable of engaging in that act more than a few times with someone if I'm really present without my heart starting to open to them. Yeah. And then that becomes potentially a problem because if, if I've decided that, oh, this can't go anywhere with this person because they're not attractive enough or they're not smart enough or they don't have the right sense of humor. So I know this isn't going to go anywhere for that reason. And yet now I'm feeling these real emotions around this person. And, you know, I certainly think, yeah, this, this is a whole, I mean, sex, I think is a topic that is going to be a, a big one for us. So we're going to talk about a lot, but in therapy, dude, you can't, you can't talk about <laughs> sex in therapy. It's, it's That's for me, it's, you know, I, I think you look at sort of, so religion kind of co-opted sexuality. You can only have sex in the context of marriage, um, generalizing now, obviously it's not all religions, but, um, and, and I think the pendulum has, for me, I think the pendulum has sw swung in the other direction where I feel like sex absolutely is sacred. That doesn't mean you should restrict what people can do, but I don't think it's ever trivial. I don't think it's ever yeah. trivial. The older I get, the more clear that comes to me that it is a momentous profound act even with someone who you really don't know at all and that's not to say that you shouldn't engage in that act with people you don't know well but i for me i'm aware of it yeah 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 i really appreciate that i think in the last couple of years i've become much more aware of how I'm trying to figure out how to say this without sounding super woo woo how when you have sex with someone you're really mixing your energy with theirs and you're picking up 
their stuff and they're picking up your stuff and it's a big it's a big blending of your energy your psyches whatever however you want to call it and that i think i've become more aware in myself that the first couple times with a new person it's always really exciting sort of no matter what it's interesting okay i have something to say about uh, that that's not yeah, my take or, necessarily or not, yeah, or not, yeah my experience you know of a, a new person is there's novelty and excitement and exploring some a new person's body and getting to know somebody else in this really intimate exciting way but i'm more and more aware of the fact that pretty quickly it starts to feel draining to me to be sharing serious intimacy with someone that I don't have a strong connection in other dimensions with after a period of time. That's sort of where I am right now. That could, the pendulum could swing again on that. I don't know. And I have, I certainly haven't mastered the topic. Do you find that draining quality is not present if it's with someone who you do have a deeper intimate connection with? The long silence and answering that question is just, reminds me how few serious deep <laughs> nourishing uh, intimate connections i've had in recent years but yeah yeah definitely see, yeah um, i find i mean i find the language of sex to be a way that i'm uh, i really like to communicate with women whether i know them well or am in a committed relationship or not I would say touch is my main love language, but after, after a little while, if I'm not also feeling connected on a romantic and a, you know, we're not making each other laugh. We can't talk for hours. It pretty quickly, I would rather sort of, you know, have dinner with a good friend, talk to my friend, Adam, about the big questions in life. Yeah. So my, in my experience is a little different. Well, you said it's exciting the first time. And for me, the older I get, if I don't know someone well the first time, and well is relative. I don't mean well, like we've known each other for months, but like I, there's a sense of, we've spent some time together. It often feels a little strange to me. Not uncomfortable, just strange. Like, oh, I'm doing this. Well, first of all, sex is, I think, inherently bizarre. I talk about it on stage, this <laughs> weird thing where you're, you're, you're shoving the most bizarre looking part of your anatomy into the most bizarre looking part of someone else's anatomy. So it is this strange act that we engage in, but also strange where it's like, wow, I'm, this person has a history. They have parents. They may or may not be alive. They have had lovers. They were a little five-year-old girl who fell on the playground and skinned her knee. And now I'm, there's all this history and all of this this energy, this being here that I don't know at all. And yet we're going all the way. We're going, you know, that expression from junior high school, you went all the way. We're going as far as we can in terms of physical intimacy. And there is something profoundly weird about that to me when I don't know someone well. That weirdness can also feed this sort of sexual animalistic excitement, no question. But, and we'll, and we'll get to this because my, more recent sexual history has included several periods of prolonged voluntary abstinence that really grew out of this. Hmm. So, but I don't feel drained. I've never, and it's an interesting thing because some men, you know, report feeling like physically drained was to be specific once they ejaculate. And I've, e even now at age 45, I don't feel that way. I, I don't notice a difference in my physical energy. It doesn't feel like I've given away energy or necessarily gotten energy from someone but it does feel like, yeah, we just did something pretty heavy and I don't know this person at all. And that feels strange to me. And as a result, I've generally, I wasn't doing it for a long time and we'll get to my more recent history where there, there have been uh, some instances of that. So yeah, I think just in responding to that, the whole other layer of this that I am still very much working on in my psyche. And I think many men are, and, and we should acknowledge, you know, our conversation we're, we're talking, we're two straight guys and we're talking about the way the Bible says it should be. Exactly. It goes without saying, 
Um, oh Jesus, that's right on the edge there with what you, <laughs> Right, we're gonna dirty, do another one <laughs> with your dirty comics tongue. <laughs> we are not sinning. Oh. We are not sinners. All right. <laughs> oh, God. Well, no, we are sinners. We're fornicating. We're engaging in all sorts of. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what you've done, but certainly I've done some stuff <laughs> that I don't think the Bible is totally cool with. Plus, we're Jews. So I don't know why we're talking about the Bible. Go on. <laughs> Where was I? <laughs> Oh, we're straight. We're straight saying? white dudes, which is almost we're a slur at this dudes. point, especially in the Bay Area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we are. Yeah, yeah. I'm mostly straight. Yeah, but I would imagine, uh, not imagine. For I mean, well, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I, I it isn't a, ima- it isn't imagine. I certainly, I've certainly had conversations about sexuality with gay friends, but I haven't had many conversations as frank about sexuality as the ones you and I have had. Yeah, it's so, just yeah. to say that we're talking about us. We're just like disclaimer. We recognize that we're talking. We're two straight white dudes talking about it's sex funny and sexuality you, you, in a very. You mean sorry? You mean two like T W O? But someone could almost hear it like two T O O. Like these guys are too straight and white. I'm not. I'm not too straight. Shit. I'm not too straight. I'm reporting. I'm right. A, you, right. I'm right, not a 100 on the Kinsey scale. Yeah, I've had. Oh, this is some exploration we, there. Right. I really haven't. And I feel almost ashamed of admitting that I haven't had any exploration. Like yeah, I, and I talk about this on stage. I'm like, why wouldn't you try it? You know, like I've done yeah. almost every drug and yet sex I've only like, I've only explored yeah. one of the, so yeah, that's, yeah, I we think should that, get into that. Yeah, for sure. But sorry, continue with your, your, your disclaimer. No, my, We're too white. <laughs> my spoiler alert for you on that is like, if, if I would imagine if it goes for you, how it went for me, it's like, turns out when you're making out with another guy, a mouth, the inside of a mouth feels like the inside of any other mouth, but beards are pretty weird for me. And I'm not that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, if anyone yeah. wants to make out with Jordan shave beforehand, regardless of your gender identity. Regardless. <laughs> Just regardless. Are you hair shaming people, Jordan? I think you're hair shaming people. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to say is like, we can't talk about like celibacy and desire and all we want without acknowledging the deep layers of cultural programming on top of, on top of all of this. And it's like, how, how do I know what's my desire? What do I want? Do I want to connect with this woman? Do I want to be alone for a while? Do I want to save myself for a woman that I feel like I'm in love with? There, that is that is absolutely not an organic thing that's just coming from inside of me. I have like frat houses and bros <laughs> and like piles and piles of white dudes and you know, do, not like white dudes have a have a monopoly on toxic patriarchy. There's like all these heaps of I don't really like the term toxic masculinity. Yeah, I, I was gonna, I was actually going to even better. ask you what that means because I'm I'm not entirely sure. But let's go, go yeah, on with the. I think the idea is coming through. Yeah, but it's just to say, like I have an imprint in my mind of being in a frat in college and these total assholes screaming at me like, like you didn't sleep with her. They didn't use that language, but I'm wait. Were you, were you in a frat? You joined a frat in college. I joined a frat and then I quit eventually. But I joined uh-huh. and pledged and became became for a time a full-fledged member of a frat a good christian frat <laughs> ne- dare- <laughs> wow why don't, you just, why don't you just kill your mother why don't you just kill your mother and get it over with <laughs> i mean really <laughs> that was about as just close as i've come grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 i i it's it's um yeah, so obviously we're approaching all of this from a certain a certain specific orientation, but I would imagine and that that these are questions that people that that transcend gender identity, sexual orientation, you know, to what extent is sex a physical act, to what extent is it emotional and the many the many levels and layers on which it um works on and within us so for me it hasn't been a feeling of so much energetic depletion it's just been more this this strangeness but that was we might be talking about the same thing i'm just trying to put a fancy bow on it but yeah something i think we're both getting at that like something sometimes doesn't quite feel right when you're having sex with someone where there's not other layers of connection yeah and i and i think part of this comes back to the fact that when you know when we're talking 10 15 years ago even i've had a pretty profound shift in recent years 
partially catalyzed by psychedelics where I'm much more to use a, a vague, but I think important phrase, I'm much more in my body. Mm-hmm. I'm much more connected to my physical experience and just aware of the present moment, which isn't to say I'm not mostly in my head. The way I look at it is I feel like I used to be 99% in my head, meaning just occupied with my own internal experience, my thoughts. Now I'm probably 85% of my head. So I'm still mostly in my head, but there's that 15% shift has been significant. And maybe it's more than 15%. Uh, having said that, sex for me was always, I've always had a certain, not even a confidence, I've just never questioned myself sexually, by which I mean I've always been able to really tap into my body and be very present during sex. And I assume this is the way it is for everyone, but I more, you know, until I've had women who have, huh, there's no way to say this without sounding arrogant. I, I have been complimented on my sexual prowess. I'm just going to own that. And it was puzzling for me for a long time because I don't have any special techniques. But I think what I do have and what I've kind of always had is this ability, which is odd given how in my head I usually am to get out of my head and tune into the physical sensations and just be present with those sensations and present with the other person. I'm, I'm entirely unselfconscious during sex. And I think I pretty much always have been. And I think that's one of the reasons why sex has been a drug for me because it's been an escape from my head. I could be in the throes of the worst OCD crisis, but if I start having sex with someone that just pulls me out of my head and into my body, sex has always felt like a liberation to me. Um, a liberation from the mind while I'm engaging it. There's degrees, obviously. There's times where you feel very connected and there's times where I don't feel that connected, but it usually depends, I think, on how available the other person is sexually. I think my default is, well, let's go back to this phrase, is to make love, to be very open and very present during sex. And again, it's odd because in so many other contexts, my default is to protect myself, to guard my heart, to hold back. So bringing it back to the the broader topic here of past relationships and lovers yeah it's been something where i've had these relationships where it's been quote unquote superficial you know we're not partners we're not girlfriend and boyfriend and yet we're engaging in this act where there is a deep connection being forged and love forged so for most of these women all of them in fact if if it's lasted more than a few months we have started to say, I love you to each other, but never like, yeah, I'd say, you know, maybe six months, eight months in, I mean, I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about a huge sample size, but there's been maybe a half dozen of these relationships over the, you know, 17 years where, where they would last that long. And maybe not all of them, but most of them, there was expressions of love, but it was also it certainly was very different from like the, I'm so in love with you. It was more like, I, I love you. You know, I'm feeling yeah. love for you. Well, such an and, interesting, such an interesting issue because yeah, I feel the more I've grown and the longer I've worked with plant medicine and done all the therapy and things I do, I feel much more free to love. And I kind of, it doesn't feel like so much of a finite resources. And I have no compunction about telling a great many of my friends that I love them. So why do we put this special weight on it with someone that we're romantically involved with? My first response when you said you tell someone you love them after six months of dating was like, whoa, that's fast. But that feels like a really college-aged response on my part. I'm like, well, why don't you, what if you love them after a month? Who knows? Who cares? But also these aren't dating. None of these, and I'd make that distinction, not one of these women would have considered that we were dating, nor would have I. It was very much so let's let's be let's be brutally specific about what these relationships were. They were generally, yeah, getting together for sex, postcoital snuggling, which I'm a huge fan of. Maybe we'd watch a movie <laughs> together, but it was these sort of co- sex and associated comfort type behaviors. Yeah. Um, you're not going yeah. to the museum rarely, rarely leaving the confines of, of her or my apartment, honestly, very rarely, very rarely, these very limited, truncated, stunted relationships. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was my MO. That was the way things unfolded. And then I met Grace. If you've seen the mushroom cure, she's the main other character. 
And I'm not going to recount the details of that relationship because I've done it in the mushroom cure, but it became, it was a long distance thing. Well, I will say this relevant recount for our a conversation. Little. Yeah, I'll recount a little bit. So we met, uh, as I've met most women at a comedy show, she was visiting from Kansas her first time in New York. She was eight years younger than me. So not insignificant age difference. She was 24 and she was there for a weekend. We slept together that night. And then the night before she left, two nights later, we slept together again. And I remember consciously thinking to myself, often with these women, I would I would not want them to sleep over. Because to mm -hmm. me, I have the, in the mushroom cure, I say, there's something very intimate about literally sleeping with someone, mm -hmm. almost more so than sex itself. For sure. And that's how it. Yeah, that's how it felt to me. It was like, okay, I'm okay being inside of them, but I don't know, <laughs> sleep, having them sleep in my bed and that level of intimacy yeah. was not something I wanted. And so I remember with Grace, the first night, uh, the first night we slept together, I believe she went back to her hotel. But the last night, I was, she actually fell asleep in my bed. You know, we'd finished having mm -hmm. sex. She fell asleep. Fortunately, it was after, not some woman fall asleep during sex with me, but this was a, a post. Uh, um, that was a joke. Anyway, we can, dub in, <laughs> we can add in Jordan's laughter post, uh, post production. No, but anyway, <laughs> she'd fallen asleep. And I remember this moment where I was like, uh, should I wake her up and like kind of kick her out? And then I was like, you know what? This is safe. This is safe because she's going to go back to Kansas tomorrow. I'm never going to see her again. So I can give myself this experience that I so desperately mm. long for. It's kind of the best of both worlds. I could have this intimate experience of literally sleeping with a woman without the danger of us actually getting emotionally too close. And so, and I talk about this in the mushroom cure. So I did, I spoon her and it's this, it was this incredible feeling. It was like, mm. wow, I've given myself this feeling in years. Yeah. And I call it the summer camp relationship. Those, rela yeah. those relationships where you can really let yourself be free because there's a built-in time horizon. I've suffice it to say I've had my fair share and it's a, it's a pattern I want to break. I want to be able to feel that free whenever. Yeah. It's easier. It's easier. And yeah. I think that's one reason uh, most women I've been with in developing sort of relationship with for years were much younger or lived far away. It was this sense of, okay, well, yeah. my log logically it can't work out. Of course, it's idiotic in a sense because just because the mind says there's logical barriers doesn't mean the heart isn't going to open. And that's what happened with this woman, Grace, is she left, she went back to Kansas, but my heart was already opening to her and I you know, bought her a plane ticket, she came back to visit. And so we had this relationship, this long distance relationship that lasted for a little bit over a year. And absolutely, I loved her. She was and is a special person. And that's such a broad thing to say. But yeah, <laughs> I, my heart opened to her. Was I ever really in love with her? It felt to me, even at the time, but especially after the fact that it was a little bit like that very first relationship we talked about last episode with Erica, my first girlfriend, where she was kind of an object for me. She was kind of a receptacle in a way for this love that I wanted to put on someone. Not, not randomly. Of course, she had some wonderful and yeah, really just special qualities to her. She was brilliant. She was someone I fell for, but also I feel like I kind of wanted, this is a good way to put it. I think I wanted to fall in love. Of course I wanted to fall in love. The one time I'd felt the most complete was when I was in love with Annie. I'd been desperately looking for a replacement Annie at that point. This was 2007 to 2009. So I've been looking at it for a replacement Annie for four years. And I kind of decided, oh, this is the replacement Annie. This is, this mm -hmm. is the one. And so it wasn't random, but it wasn't also entirely authentically about her, about Grace. And it was a long distance relationship, which introduces all sorts of distortions in my experience because the way it would operate for Grace and I is that this was the pattern that pretty reliably established itself. So we'd be talking on the phone a lot and feeling all these strong feelings and telling each other we loved each other and we can't wait to see each other. 
And in my mind, I'm, you know, really building up this picture of who this person is based on these conversations. Then she shows up at my door and I'm like, oh, wait, she's not that person. Or she's, you know, reality collides with the fantasy in a pretty, pretty harsh way. And I'd feel early on like, oh, this isn't really what I want. She's not who I want. And I'd start to get distant and she would feel it. And we'd start to feel like, oh, this isn't working. And then we would often reach a point on one of these visits. And these visits, mind you, were not always that long. She might have just be visiting for five or six days. We'd reach a point where I'd be like, oh, this isn't going to work. This relationship is over. But yet she still was in New York. She was still staying with me. She Her plane ticket back to California wasn't for a few more days. She'd moved to, from uh, Kansas to California for grad school. And so we're hanging out anyway, and we start to fall back in love because basically what had happened was the pressure I'd felt. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm being fairly convoluted here. No, no, no. I, yeah, I totally get it with that pressure release that feeling of that freedom that comes when you're still with someone, but you've decided that it's not going to work out. And then you're just, but she's still my best friend. So yeah. (laughs) Is she? I mean, at that grace, at that point, she, I don't mean now. Yeah, no, I mean, Uh so right. I was sorry. I was trying to elaborate on your point. Like it's not going to work out, but meanwhile, she's still here and she's still my best friend. And Hey, now that the pressure's off, I can just enjoy her company. And right. Cause we've been, yeah. Now that I'm enjoying her company. Well, wait a second. I think she is the one. I think one of, for me, one of the things that's always troubled me so much about sexual relationships is how it feels like there's so much that goes unspoken it's like you meet someone and you're becoming friends with them and you're talking and having a normal back and forth and sharing your needs and they're sharing their needs and it's all very simple. And then you start sleeping together and all of a sudden, the way it's gone in my life is all of a sudden all this stuff gets submerged below the surface and you're not talking about it. And that for me starts to build up that pressure. So pre-sleeping together, you're hanging out and you're talking about, you said your needs or just your needs being like, hey, I want a pizza. Do you want a pizza? Like, oh, I see. Yeah, I'd like yeah. not like your it's all psychological very... or romantic needs, just more you're yeah. communicating directly yeah. the way friends do without too much concern yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then when sex is introduced, the stakes are emotionally higher for everybody. And for me, I think my thing, and I I think this has also been your thing at points in your life has has been that then I, there's stuff that I feel like I can't communicate because it might hurt the person if I'm having some insecurities or some doubts about like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work out. I'm not sure about those earlobes that I saw on her. Like might be, I mean, that's more my insecurity, but right. Yeah. You're projecting, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you for labeling the psychological yeah. mechanism. That's projection America. <laughs> so that for me builds that pressure. And then you have the conversation where you're like, oh, it's not going to work out. Okay, cool. But I still think you're cool and we're still around each other because you're staying in my apartment or whatever. So let's keep having fun and enjoy each other and keep sleeping together if that's what we want to do. I feel so free after the seal has been broken on that authentic communication. And I feel as though in recent years in my life, my work has been to try to have that communication be present throughout and not only happening when it's built up to a point where the relationship's about to break down and you're about to talk about how you're going to stop seeing each other. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it, do- it does make sense. I think the general thing we're both touching on is this, I don't know if paradox is the right word or irony, but where when it's kind of like this isn't going to work out then it's a lot easier for things to quote unquote work out because the pressure is off. Yes. And when it's like, is this working out? I want this to work out. This needs to work out. Then that pressure makes it a lot harder to just, just be present with each other. Yeah. And I think it's totally connected. It's like the cousin of that thing that happened when coronavirus came and canceled all of my weekend plans and canceled all of my summer plans. And all of a sudden I had no more decisions to make about my own calendar it was so relieving. So I was like, Oh, okay. I don't have to figure it out. I'm just going to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's kind of, we're kind of letting ourselves off the hook in terms of, yeah, figuring it out is a perfect way to put it. So how do we uh, have that freedom the whole time? Yeah. And this is something I've, I I thought I had with Clara. I think we did have it and, and we'll get to her, but it was, 
it, it was a lot of conversation and also a lot of just it feeling really good and really easy to be together yeah. and feeling like we could talk about anything. And I, well, here actually, maybe it's the ultimate hack, which was there wasn't much doubt around her. Actually, that's not entirely true. Some doubt did flare up, but I have a different way of working with my, when my mind throws up these things, she's not blank enough or she's too blank. I'm able to separate from my mind to a large extent now, which doesn't stop my mind from doing that, but I don't identify with those thoughts as much. And I'm able to um, push through or not even push through, just kind of keep going and, and know that my mind will exhaust itself. So... Um, yeah, so there's been some growth and you've been able to separate yourself from some old patterns. And so maybe with Clara, we're going to see some new stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we will. And a couple of other relationships. So let, let's press ahead a little bit more with these relationships. So that that was the pattern. So with Grace, um, eventually, debating how much to simplify here. Yeah, eventually she kind of got tired of this push-pull thing, this sort of like, I love you, you're the one I want. Uh, I'm not actually sure, I don't know, I don't know. I love you, you're the one I want. She got tired of it, understandably, and walked away. And to what you're saying, when that happened, there was a little bit of relief, like, okay, now I don't have to figure it out anymore. Now it's off the table. Mm -hmm. My OCD, worth mentioning, this is the time of the mushroom cure, which is the story of how I tried to cure my OCD with psychedelics. I was doing a lot of psychedelics and some of them I was doing with grace. And that certainly is a very powerful uh, experience doing psychedelics with someone you're feeling love for. Mm -hmm. So I think that facilitated the opening and bonding that I felt with her, but also may have added to some of the pressure because it kind of fast tracked some of that opening. And actually, there were some experiences where we took psychedelics where we were at this point of, uh, is this over? Is this not over? And in that state, hmm, yeah, this is true. I hadn't thought about this before. In that state, the default was more to open my heart and, and go in the direction of love rather than protection. And I think that's one of the powerful effects psychedelics can have is heart opening. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it certainly had that effect. So I might be with this person that I wasn't sure about, but once those tabs or, or grams kicked in, it was like, oh no, of course, I love this person. That's all that matters. Yeah. But ultimately, that relationship did end. And the OCD, I should say, started to lessen up. The psychedelics were helpful and other things were helpful. And so around 2010, the OCD started getting better. And one of the results of that is that I decided to travel for the first time in my life, like doing kind of just discretionary travel on my own. I, I had a day job. I was working on Wall Street then I was, and I had money in the bank. And so I took a four-month leave of absence and went to uh, India and Thailand. And there I met and fought, fell in love with a woman, Saskia, a Dutch woman live, living in Geneva at that time, but she was in Thailand. And and that was very much this summer camp type love. She's a remarkable person, someone who I still have a lot of love for. But it was absolutely, I was able to say yes to it because of that summer camp dynamic. We had about mm -hmm. two months together on this paradise beach in Thailand. And yeah, it was kind of like, well, why wouldn't I say yes to this? There's no obligation beyond these two months. So I, I did fall in love with her, absolutely. But again, under ordinary circumstances, I'm sure my mind would have found things that were wrong. And indeed, my mind did probably find some things that were quote unquote wrong, but it wasn't an issue because it was like, this is a somewhat brutal, I'm using that word a lot, but brutal analogy. It's kind of like renting a car versus buying a car. I rent cars often. And you know what? If the car is a little bit of a dent, I don't care. It's not my car. It's irrelevant. Whereas if I'm buying a car, you, I'm sure I would be absolutely, you know, completely perfectionistic. So I may have noticed the dent. I may have noticed these little things that weren't quote unquote perfect about Saskia, but they didn't bother me because I was just renting. And then she visited me in New York not that long, long after, maybe two months after. And it was, again, that same just brutal collision with reality where it's like, oh, well, now this is real. And now all these things are wrong. And it was a painful visit. Mm -hmm. And we saw each other one more time a few months later. And, uh, and then that was it. But I will say, I think of her sometimes as someone who, one of the women who I feel like 
were I more open and ready, I feel like absolutely we could have had a partnership. We worked well together. She was a good match for me. I was a good match for her in a lot of ways. Hmm. So I don't say that with deep regret because I don't think I could have done differently based on who I was then. But yeah, she was certainly ready. She was looking for a partnership and in fact, wanted to get married and have kids. And I think had we gone that route, I think we we probably could have done it, which is maybe an arrogant thing because I like, you know it's not easy, but it felt like the potential was there. I mean, I get the pattern just like that. Yeah. The summer camp relationship and then the confrontation with reality. It's like, and when I hear you say that, I'm just like, I wince a little bit in myself. I'm just like, how do we find our way out of this? Well, maybe so let's, you, maybe, yeah. we, maybe we follow you. There has been some light at the end. Of the I also just needed, I did need to interject that to be fair, I have seen you really obsess over a rental car before. Oh yeah, this is true. I do have, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, it's right. So my pat is, yeah, uh, I called you when I, when I was supposed to meet you for, 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 we're supposed to meet up with you. I flew into SF. I remember this was like early June last year and I spent like an hour and a half in the Hertz parking lot in SFO. Cause what they do, damn them. This is so hard. Is they're like, Oh, you can pick any car in this row in the gold. <laughs> row. Yeah. So yeah, on my phone, Googling reviews That's... of the hottest. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like I said, you're a, you're a type one diabetic who opened a bakery. That's the equivalent of like a, a recovering addict walking through the neighborhood where they used to get the good stuff. <laughs> but you know what? Here, I'll, Adam. I'll... <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll go back to the metaphor though, because this is, I think my metaphor still holds because I would say a typical rental car experience is they just give you the keys and that's your car. And I think if they just given me the keys and said, Hey, this is the car you have, then I'd be like, all right, well, it has a dent, but this is the car I have. Yeah. But in SFO, you have basically, you have your choice of a row of cars. And yes, that is the the bakery for me. <laughs> that is the bakery. And I want to sample everything and make sure that I yes, am eating the it's not about the pastry. Because <laughs> it's not about the, the outcome being the best possible outcome. It's about that you can't make the wrong choice. It's about your, your choice. It's not about the actual car that you find yourself sitting in. Yes. And this is, we're getting into the heart of OCD, but my perception is it is about the car because guess what? Yeah. I'm not renting this car for a week. This is usually when I'm you know, doing a theater engagement in San Francisco where I'm here for three months and I'm driving 50 miles a day. And so this is an important decision, but of course it's ultimately, uh, there's deeper issues clearly that motivate that sort of behavior. But the light at the end of the tunnel with this whole relationship thing, it's not like I've totally broken the cycle by any means, but I had another one of these relationships, a uh, woman named Lillian. I was 40. She was 22. It was exactly that sort of, this can't go anywhere so we can just enjoy each other. Really sweet person, supportive. I definitely developed love for her. It was mutual. Really intense sexual connection developed. And she was smart, but we just couldn't really have conversations. We just didn't have much to talk about. And so it could regularly we would come into this sort of, well, should we keep doing this? And at one of these times she had the perfect line. She said, you know, if we weren't having sex, I don't think we'd be friends. And yeah, she was absolutely right. Mm. But at the same time, it's like, well, what's the harm? We give each other comfort. We give each other pleasure. When one of us was going through a difficult time, we would support the other one emotionally. What it came down to for me is I started to believe that in some sense, by giving energy to this relationship that seemed like it would always be very limited, I was foreclosing the possibilities to have what I truly wanted, which was a deeper committed partnership. It felt mm. to me like almost in a sort of esoteric, energetic way, the universe, if I was saying to the universe, yes, I'm, I'm okay with Lillian, I'm not going, the universe is not going to give me what I really want. Or maybe pragmatically, if I, this is occupying a fair amount of my time and energy, I'm not going to have an incentive to try to find what I really want. So I eventually ended that relationship. And then a few weeks later, the loneliness hit and I was like, oh man, I don't know. And I actually tried to, to get back together with her, but she was to her credit, uh, not having it. Hmm. Yeah, that, um. I like how you framed that both the pragmatic question of like, I'm spending time with this person. So therefore I might not have time to meet 
the partner of my dreams, but also this more nebulous spiritual energetic concept of like, do I need to be holding an open space next to the, next to the hearth of my heart or something for someone to, to walk into and sit down next to me? Do I need to be like cultivating that potential space or something? Yeah. And part of, you know, it's part of it. I'm laughing. One thing that brought this home to me is, um, uh, a, a comedian friend of mine, Esther Steinberg, a uh, great comic, really funny. She has this joke about the secret, uh, you know, that whole, that whole idea of magic. Oh yeah. I don't really know what that is. Well, share her joke, which I'm not going to, I'm not, I wouldn't do it justice. So I'm not going to try to do it, but she talks about how this idea of, you know, you want, you want to find a partner. Well, you only sleep in one side of your bed. You clear out half of your <laughs> closet space. You make literal space in your life for this person to appear. Oh, wow. And, and we can, I, I'd love to talk about this idea of manifesting because I think yeah. there's a lot of bullshit, but I also think there's something to it. But yeah, that, that kind of, it was kind of that idea too, that, yeah, let me make space for the relationship I really want to manifest. And so that's why I ended things with Lillian. And then I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of space here and this space hurts. And then I, I met someone where it felt like for the first time in many years, it was like, oh, this is it. This is the thing I've been looking for. This is someone who I can really uh, settle down with and maybe not even settle down with, but this is someone who, not that I didn't have any reservations, but I was able to put those reservations aside and say, I want to go for it with this person. I want to see where mm -hmm. this goes. Mm -hmm. and so maybe that's a good place to um, leave off for, for this episode. Yeah, that sounds good. Do you have any, uh, closing thoughts or observations? I think we're about two episodes away from fixing you. All right. Nice. Nice. So Clara and then mom, and then I'm good. <laughs> and then you're boom, you're enlightened. And I'm, and I'm there. <laughs> good chatting with you. You too. Stay safe. Wash your hands. But not too much. Not too much. Keep your heart open and your and your uh, nostrils closed if you're around <laughs> anyone who's coughing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking for a tagline. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's it, but uh, I appreciate the effort. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Until and, next time. All right. Talk to you. Uh, talk to you soon. And love you. Uh, we talked about the ending with that, where sometimes it feels contrived, sometimes it feels real, but yeah, I love you. So No, I, I love you, man. All right. Have a good one, Jordan. Bye, dude.